Love Talk Radio. This week on Backroom Politics, breaking news coming out of Los Angeles. The NBA has banned Donald Sterling, the LA Clippers owner, for life and fined him $2.5 million. We're, talking about, we're going to be talking about sports and race relations and the verdict out of the NBA. Also, we will have special guests, if you can believe it, Gil Hoffman. He is the political correspondent for the Jerusalem Post talking about the tensions between Washington, Tel Aviv, and the Secretary Kerry Gap. We're going to be talking about a possible deal in an immigration bill, and the Obama administration continues its campaign for higher minimum wage. We're going to be talking with noted author and political economist Dr. Oren Levin-Waldman. This, and tell me a story this week on Backroom Politics. Live from Shelley's Back Room, 1331 F Street in the heart of our nation's capital, Washington, D.C., this is Backroom Politics. To join the discussion, you can call toll-free 1-877-662-3713. And now, the moderator of Backroom Politics, Justin Russell. Tuesday here in the nation's capital, which means it's time for the best political talk show you've never heard of. It's Backroom Politics Live on Blog Talk Radio from Shelley's Backroom, 1331 F Street in the heart of our nation's capital, Washington, D.C. Joining me as they do every Tuesday, he is the former eight-term member of Congress representing Washington's 2nd Congressional District. He is Congressman Al Swift, but Congressman's out there greeting everybody. Hey, Al, anytime you want to come join the show, please feel I'll, I'll free. Be there. I'll be right there. Okay. To my, to, my one, to my 11 o'clock across the table, he is the former floor chief and then Congressman Gerald R. Ford. He is the... Any, anytime, guys. Run in a real live show. <laughs> He's the former vice president of government affairs for the National Broadcasting Corporation. He is the Honorable Bob Hines. Hello, Bob. Hi, Justin. Uh, I'm, I'm here now. Oh, um, uh, I'm what what so, did you want? <laughs> I'm so glad that you're able to join us. Hi, Al. To my one o'clock across the table. <laughs> Again, live radio show, guys. Hot mic. To my one o'clock across the table, he is the former Undersecretary of Commerce uh, for International Affairs. He is the uh, former longtime Senate staffer and a very distinguished, factual, and damn fellow from the Stimson Center. He is the Honorable Alan Moore. Hello, Alan. Hello, gentlemen. Uh, and to my right, he is the former Executive Director of the Democrat Party of the Great State of Maryland. He is longtime Washington insider Carl Tubin. Hello, Carl. Good afternoon, Somewhere Justin. out, Somewhere out there in wetland is uh, the former General Counsel to the Homeland Security Committee under Penny Thompson, former Obama appointee Denise Krepp. She will be joining us here as soon as she wades through traffic and rain. Uh, but... We've got uh, lots to cover today. We've got two very special guests going to be joining us at the 4.30 and the 5 o'clock hour. Uh, but right now we're going to be talking about the breaking news coming out of New York and Los Angeles. Uh, for those who have not been following, if you've been living under a rock, uh, the owner of the L.A. Clippers, Donald Sterling, was recorded by his 
little girlfriend uh, talking very racist remarks, very hateful remarks. Uh, remarks that do not reflect well on the owner of an NBA team, let alone any particular human, uh, which sparks a whole discussion uh, on race relations and was this the right decision banning him for life from the NBA. Joining us right now is another very special guest of ours. Uh, he is the executive director of the Emmaus Council for Aging. He is longtime community activist here in Washington, D.C. He is Joe Williams. Joe, how you doing, brother? Good to see well, you. Justin, Thanks for joining us. Uh, when you know, Joe, when when you first heard about this, I mean, l let's be honest. Everybody who everybody who knew uh, about Donald Sterling as the owner of the of the L.A. Clippers, uh, everybody in the NBA knew for decades that this guy was a total jerk. He's had race issues. He's been sued several times. Uh, this is not a surprise, but why, why do you think it took so long for his mindset to get out there? It seems that it would have come out there from other players or other people associated with him. I think we have a tolerance <clears throat> for this sort of thing. Um, even though many of us want to see different, many of us want expect different, we think that we have grown over time in terms of relationships race relationships, cultural relationships, but there's a tolerance that I believe that, that, that we have and we allow people um, to be the way they are and accept them. And sometimes we accept them based on what they've been able to accomplish, you know, economically and because they pull strings. And, but I think, honestly, I think that he wasn't checked a long time ago. It's like I, I say this about young players who are coming up now in AAU. Young players coming up now in AAU are allowed to, to get over in school, to, to, to be tolerated for not being the best student because they have athletic proudness, and then you allow that behavior to develop over time, and it becomes accepted. And I think that's the problem of but, this. But, you know, we, we've seen other stupid, racially insensitive remarks done by other people, whether it's Mel Gibson and his Jewish tirade where he said just horrible things about Jewish people. Uh, whether it's it's you know any member of Congress that's been pinched talking about you know uh, people of color, but in this instance, it wasn't like he was calling him and ladies and gentlemen, I'm just going to say this, uh, you know, it's an ugly word, but it's not like he was saying nigger. It wasn't like he was calling him darkies. He just said, I just don't want black people at the, at my games. I don't want them sitting at my table. Some are defending him, saying, well, what he said wasn't that bad. He just didn't want black people at his seat. There's obviously a difference here, Joe. But you got black people making you money. You have black people who, you, who actually are your product. And what are you, what are you referring to them as? Less than? You, you, can, you can use them to make money for you, but you can't associate with them in a manner where they're accepted by you? Does it surprise you, Joe, that all of a sudden now you have a situation where, I mean, here's a guy who's made millions and millions, hundreds of millions of dollars on his own right uh, at the expense of low-income housing, uh, at the expense of being sued for running substandard low-income housing uh, for properties that he owns. Are, are you surprised that he, he is an, own, an active owner in the NBA? And are you surprised that the tolerance was that broad for his his mindset in the NBA. You got Kareem Abdul-Jabbar was a consultant for him when he was interviewed on CNN. They asked him, "Have you known about this for a long time?" He said, "Yes." And yet you still work for him. Is there a hypocrisy there? Money is green, 
so people are going to work for anybody that, that can help their own socioeconomic status. What I am surprised about is the fact that no one checked him a long time ago. I'm, I'm very much disturbed by something that, that I heard Magic Johnson say, that you know he felt like he was one of the ones to bring him in, in terms of bringing him into the NBA and, and getting him there. And he had to know this, and he didn't check him. He didn't check him. Why now, didn't he? Alan Moore. Yeah. Um, he bought his team for $12 million in 1981. It was different then. I, my guess is they were having trouble finding owners. Here's the guy. He's an L.A. businessman. Nobody wants to buy a team to go up against the Lakers. He buys this team. We say we knew all about him. I don't know how much we actually knew about him. He's got sort of a compelling life story. A poor Jewish kid who came out of law school, couldn't get a job, became a very active, busy lawyer, got into real estate, became enormously successful. Uh, and, and you don't become a billionaire in real estate if all you do is take advantage of people. Obviously, underneath his layer of whatever, of gruffness or hard work or whatever, was this bigoted, racist strain. But it's not, if people say, oh, we've kind of known this. Well, I think that, that people knew that he was pretty outspoken in private on some issues of race. There were a couple of lawsuits, uh, one of which was brought by Elgin Baylor, one of the greatest basketball players of all time, who worked for the team as general manager for 22 years. And he lost his lawsuit. And, and that doesn't mean that there weren't things that came out that might have been troubling. I read through some of that stuff, and I thought, it's nasty, it's ugly, but by now the guy has... He's, he's had Elgin Baylor as his general manager for 22 years, and one of Elgin's complaints was he didn't pay me enough money. Well, you don't bring that up as you're walking out the door. Or you bring that up sooner. I'm not being critical of Elgin. All I'm saying is it's not like everybody turned away and didn't know. What happened in this case, though, was so outrageous, and it was his own words that we were hearing, and then all these images of him and the young girlfriend you, you add up all these pieces and you say, this guy doesn't belong in the NBA. What can we do about it? Because he's the owner. And, and these are 32 owners, and they have some ability to make decisions as a group, but it's really up to them, and they can't just take his property. So uh, I think that, that what the new, uh, the new commissioner did was everything he could do. But, but, you know, the funny thing about it is, you know, when we look at this, he, he had, in one of the dumbest moves ever, allowed himself to be recorded, number one. Number two, would talk in this disparaging way about a minority that he's making millions on, on a team that is probably, up until this point, favored to possibly win the championship. And the biggest, dumbest thing he could have done is he's got the president of the Players Association as his starting as his starting point guard. He's not thinking about any of that stuff. He's got this underlying bigotry. He's giving what he thinks is 
in his own twisted brain, helpful advice to this young, this young woman, this, this girlfriend, who happens to be mixed race herself. It's just strange. I was hoping that, that, that there would be some, some explanation that, that took away a portion of the ugliness, like he's got a, he's got a terminal brain tumor. And he's been saying new stuff, but he, but it's clear that he's got this history, and and he lets it out in private. It was recorded. Now the world sees it, and they have to act. But Joe, you know, you you would think that Chris Paul, along with being a fantastic basketball player, is a very sharp, savvy, business-minded individual. That's why he was elected as the president of the Players Association. You would think as one of his franchise players, that Chris Paul would have known about his mindset over the past five seasons that he's been playing for the Clippers, why wouldn't somebody like Chris Paul either A, have known about it, or B, brought this up as a player's issue as president of the Players Association? If you look at the hierarchy of basketball, you have your general manager and you have your coach. And your players generally associate... And a president. And a president. So your, your players generally associate their... And the only association with the owner comes at the negotiation of a contract. And that's pretty much done, again, underlying the owner okays it. So how much, how much connection and relationship does he really have with the owner other than in Clipper-associated events? He doesn't have to, you know, be around him 24-7 or a lot. I, I think the bottom line is, is that anybody who walks with a level of, I will call this, you, you call it bigotry, I would call it a, a, a deep-rooted hatred that, is, that has been festering a very long time in him that hasn't, hasn't been dealt with. Another thing I'd like to add, and I'll say this. We say this about seniors all the time. Seniors, we jokingly say this since I run a senior organization. Seniors get to say whatever Be they careful, want to say. Be careful. Look around this table. I know, I know. <laughs> but they get to say whatever they want to say, and we say, okay, you've earned that right to say what you want to say. Yes. And we tolerate it. We do. We tolerate it. I think Chris Paul was not in a position, um, Elgin Vale, as you said, waited too late and should have dealt with it in a, in a, in a different manner while he was in the position. And, I, again, this is an individual. And I want to say this. I think we need to put it at the individual. I don't think this is emblematic of, of the ownership of the NBA. I think it's the individual. There are other individuals or many other corporate places who probably feel the same way, but they're smart enough not to open their mouths and say it publicly. Congressman Al. I think that what you may be dealing with here is the fact that some people just don't get it. Let's bring in the, 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 the cattle rancher out who's suing the federal government because uh, they're making pay for the grazing rights. He has said some, not only are, is that whole argument stupid, but he said some very difficult racist things. And you can't believe that a person could be as dumb as he sounds and not have to be nudged in the ribs to be reminded to breathe. Yet, I think what you, the way you understand this is he doesn't get it. He'll never get it. He, he just doesn't. He's not in the same universe with decent people who understand this. And I suspect he and the uh, owner of the basketball team may be in the same league in that regard. Carl Tubin. One thing I can't understand <clears throat> is the fact that the picture was taken with uh, Magic, and, uh, and, and, and Magic was the one, as you say, 
who got him into the NBA. And and how stupid is it to to make this whole mess come up when he's really he, he's fighting the hand of the guy who who helped him to, to get an NBA franchise. Now I'm not making any excuses for him, but you know there's some people, unfortunately, who grew up in my generation and and a little older than I am, probably a lot older than I am, um, who, for some reason, civil rights came. Many many people supported it, including myself and and friends and all, my family. But there were other people who just don't. As you know, just don't give up. And it festers and festers and festers until something like this happens. And it's a damn shame. Well, I mean, the one thing that we do do have to bring up here, and and I think it's very very important here, is the commissioner, Adam uh, Adam Silver. Adam Silver's literally been on the job for weeks. I mean, we're talking four months he's been on the job. Adam Silver literally issued the harshest penalty against any owner in the history of the NBA. Is Joe, in your opinion, is that a sign that the NBA gets it and that Adam Silver himself, because a lot of people I've talked to in the sports community say, David Stern never does this. David Stern never bans him for life, never pulls the march shot. Is that, is that a sign of optimism? Is it a sign that the NBA and Adam Silver get this? I don't know if we can, <clears throat> I can't speak for Adam Silver. I, I would say this. I would think that the NBA and the commissioner understands the product that they have. And I think they understand that from an economic perspective, that if they allow this sort of thing to perpetuate in the NBA and become a strand, it hurts the product. That's just, that's just to me, that's just being a smart businessman. All right? If you have someone who will hurt your product, you have to do something about that. And, but the other piece of it is, I think that Adam Silver also has shown the fact that he has a respect for the people, the individuals, the players, the other people who work in the league who are a minority and who are different from who he is. And he's, he's, he's making a statement by saying, listen, we won't tolerate this under my watch. Now, what, what's going to be interesting to see is how this all plays out with the other owners. Denise Kraft. Uh, I can tell you one thing. Uh, you know, for me, it's, it's zero tolerance. And given that there are other civil rights issues that are going on right now, this is sending a very strong signal to other people saying, we will not tolerate these types of statements. Now let's encourage other people who are facing similar civil rights issues to be making the same decision. It does, give them, huge, it does huge. give them a chance to, to, to show leadership in this area. I will say that. But it's surprising to me because, you know, we had a situation last season uh, with one of the wide receivers from the Philadelphia Eagles going off and, you, I mean, using words much worse uh, than, uh, than the owner of the L.A. Clippers ever did, and he was only given a five-game suspension. Is Adam Silver's decision to do something this drastic, do you think that the other professional sports commissioners are going to take notice and say, look, we have to set the example We've got to be the ones that show we will not tolerate this, Joe. We can only be hopeful for that. Um, I believe that the NFL should have done more in that case, and they did not. Um, I think that the other issue here is is that the NBA believes that it has a product 
that is an American product. And if it's an American product, it cannot tolerate bigotry. It cannot tolerate hatred. It cannot tolerate separatism. How, how big? How big? is the race issue, I mean, you and I hang out all the time here at Shelley's. Uh, we watch a lot of sporting events together. In your opinion, how, how, how tense is the racial situation in professional sports? I think locker rooms are different from, from the quote-unquote corporate, corporate boardroom. I think in the locker rooms there is a camaraderie because athletes come together to, for the purpose of a team to win. And they take each other's talent and accept each other in that but way. Is, but is there a certain hypocrisy in this? Because I, you know, I've, I've been around professional sports. I've even been around college sports players. Uh, I've heard uh, African American. I've heard black sports players refer to other black sports players as, again, I apologize, my nigga. They've gone around and they've used disparaging words against each other. And it seems like there might be, and I'm not defending it. But there might be a, a sort of cross wire here when we talk about that. None of us agree with the fact that you should call somebody ignorant. But there is a cultural understanding and acceptance, even among African Americans as myself, that you, you accept that. Is it right? No. Are there many of us who are saying that we need to pull away from that? Yes. But the reality is I wouldn't call it a hypocrisy as much as I call it a cultural difference. And even within my culture... Should there be a change in the that, culture? There should be a change in the culture. Because so, I shouldn't be referring to anyone as ignorant. Right. That's the bottom line. I have to look and choose, look at my words and choose my words carefully. I shouldn't call, in any race, I shouldn't call you outside of a human being, a man or a woman. That's how I should be. But we aren't raised that way. We aren't raised that way in this country. Congressman Al. You raised your hand, Congressman. Now's your time. I was I was picking my lip. Oh, okay. Call <laughs> Tubin. Uh, what about the what about the situation in Miami? Uh, the football player last uh, last uh, season who was taunted and all in, in the locker room, and finally he he pulled away from the team altogether. Should that have been investigated more? Well, I, my understanding from that is that the, you're talking about the Miami that's, Dolphins. Yeah, right. that's, the Miami, that's a hazing situation. Right, right, that's a hazing situation. And the Miami Dolphins did, um, in the NFL, take did take action on that. But the challenge with that was there wasn't proof that it was, it was more of a racial attack than it just was an attack of an, an older player on a younger player. But it would have happened to be different races. Right, but, exactly. but, but that's why I'm saying, you know, Alan Moore you know, first. I think we've got to be really careful to distinguish between an owner of a team and the, the, the behavior that can be demanded of such a person. And in this case, when he crossed every conceivable barrier you could imagine, they threw the book at him, such as the, such as the, the, the tools that were available to the commissioner. When you get into the culture of players, everybody is a product of his or her background, and there are all sorts of things that go on, not only in the locker room, but if it's in football, on the line of scrimmage, or if it's in the basketball, when you're, when you're uh, jockeying for position for a rebound, people say stuff. They try to get under the other guy's skin. God help us if we feel like 
every time somebody uses the N-word or some other disparaging term of sexual gender, sexual preference, whatever, that we're going to somehow throw the book, God help us. That is not to say that we have to, that, that, we, we, that, we, shouldn't, that we shouldn't continue to educate, to nudge, to encourage, to make people realize that words can be harmful, but believe me, I'm the last one who's going to say somebody of any race who calls a name should be somehow indefinitely suspended See, I, I or, or sanctioned. No, but I, I disagree well, with that. Well, that's fine. You can disagree. I, I absolutely but. disagree with that because, you know, here's the thing. is you know, I, I keep going to Chris Paul because, to me, when I look at all the players in the NBA, I look at Chris Paul as being somebody who's very grounded, very astute, uh, very business savvy, and also very savvy of what his role is. He is a role model to kids that might be underprivileged in L.A. or nationwide. He has come out and said in several interviews, including one with Real Sports, saying, look, I do not believe, I think they should take action when used disparagingly. I, whether I'm black or not does not matter. It's a hateful word outright. So I think that if you don't in, encompassingly enforce it, then you have a problem. You have a you building a hypocrisy. There is no way that you can enforce the words that are said underneath a pile of guys in a football game any more than the pinching and the biting and the scratching and so on. If you hear it, if you see it, sure, jump on it. But but you know the the, the trying to take people from the world they grew up in and have been part of and say okay. All new rules now for you. This is sort of this whole issue with the, the new wide receiver for the for the Redskins, Deshaun Jackson. He he still hangs with some of the kids he grew up with. Well, why is that a huge surprise? As long as he's not breaking any laws. Yeah, he's but Joe hangs out with Joe hangs out with me, and I'm unsavory. Well, that's a <laughs> different issue. I, I limit it, though. I limit it. Yeah, like only weekdays. These crowds. I mean, not only do you have to break it, because you have to break it because what happens on the playing field happens in real life. You don't simply muzzle yourself because you put on a suit and tie. I mean, my civil rights issue that I was referring to was the military issue. We're talking about sexual assault, where we don't seem to be saying, mm, no, 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 this is bad or this is good. You know, but you are sending a signal here when you talk, when you kick out this guy in the, you know, in the NBA saying, we're not tolerating, not only tolerating, we're going to fine you $2.5 million. That is a huge signal that you're going to be sending to other people to say, no more. You can't stand up and you can't do the right thing by saying you can't do this anymore. Joe Williams, the NFL is, is invoking a, a unsportsmanlike conduct penalty for the use of disparaging language on the field during play. Starting right. this football season, and that, and so with that, which includes a, an on-field penalty and a fine, and a fine, right? So that is a way to begin to uh, to change the culture. All right, because now there's intensity. You play ball with you ever play ball. There's a whole lot of intensity out there. There's a whole lot of intensity when you're playing, and a lot of things come out in the midst of that. But the only way to change the culture is to make it clear that it is not to be tolerated, and to penalize it. Now, we don't penalize that across the board in this country. We don't. We know that. We all know that. There are people who can get away with stuff. And so the reality is, until there becomes, in the military, in the boardroom, 
on the playing field, a, 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 a zero tolerance that we do nationally, we will continue to have these sort of things to rise up. You know, one of the things that was stated in, in his interview or when he, when he was investigated, they asked was there anybody who, did he have any change of heart? They said he made no additional statements toward what he said. Right. We got a caller on the line. Caller from the 810, you're on with Backroom Politics. Hello, this is Gil Hoffman from the Jerusalem Post. You said you wanted to talk to me? Oh, yeah, Mr. Hoffman, we're going to have you on the next segment. Stand by, we're going to put you back on hold. Um, I have one more minute before i got to go give a lecture, sir. So um, what did you want to ask me? Uh, oh, well, we've got, we've, we've got a whole bunch of stuff we wanted to ask you. Unfortunately, we've got to finish up this segment. Uh, Mr. Hoffman, uh, Mr. Hoffman, if we could uh, have Brent reschedule you, we'd love to do that, sir. Um, okay. Oh, well. Thank, thank you, sir. Um, with, with, with that in mind, um, with, with, with that in mind, Joe, as, as we as we close out the segment, is is this something that you hope that other people, not just in professional sports at all levels, but other people in business and other people, other leaders in the communities like you lead, that they'll take notice of this and saying, okay, look, at some point we got to say enough's enough. I think it starts with the individual. The answer to your question, first of all, is yes. And I think that it starts with the individual. If, as, an, as a nonprofit CEO, if I have a board member who expresses that sort of thing to me as an African-American or expresses it to someone else on my board and I get wind of that, they can't be on my board. And if the board decides that they're going to let that person be on the board, then I can't leave the organization. I won't take a stand for myself. You know, I'm going to say this again. A stand should have been taken a long time ago, and you allowed it to grow to this point where it became public. And when it hits the public forum, the NBA commissioner, whoever the head of that, that any organization, has to address it rightly. And, and rightly means that we don't accept bigotry and hatred at the table. Carl Tubman. Why, why then wasn't, well, we, why wasn't this done when he was sued by the Justice Department? And, and that was all also some of the same thing, not letting African Americans uh, be in his buildings, his apartments. And he got sued for that. So, uh, and I'm not sure when that lawsuit was, but that would, in my mind, that would have been the time when the NBA should have investigated and, and done something. You know, if you get a good lawyer and a group, a good group of lawyers, you know, you can you can get out of anything. We all know that, am I right? I mean, that's the reality. Well, not out of anything. You know, that was a private matter with with him and these people who brought suit. That was the Justice Department. He played it. He paid a big fat fine, uh, and uh, but it was it was not something where he was. Out in the public record, it was a different point in time. I, I, I don't know what David Stern knew at the time, but I'm not in, about to criticize Stern and Silver, who remember was in the commissioner's office for the last 20 years. Um, I have, we don't know what all they knew, when they knew it, what they did in the past. We know what happened now when this exploded all over and, 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 and has, has become a huge distraction during some very exciting playoffs. But, but uh, I, I'm not going to sit here and criticize 
them or Chris Paul. Uh, I don't know what Chris Paul knew, and I... I, I, I don't think anybody's criticizing well, Chris Paul. You, know, I, 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 you were saying, why didn't he do that? No, no, I'm I asking, when I asked the question, what, the question I asked was, you know, if he if he knew about it, we don't know if he knew. But that's I, what I'm saying. I, I, I think, think he's a legitimate question. question. I think the question was, why didn't he do more? But and we he, don't know what he knew. Well, I think that Chris Paul took the lead from his head coach. His head coach took the high road in this. And you have to applaud the head coach for saying, you know what, I don't accept that. That's not an acceptable behavior, but I have a job to do. Players, you're under contract. You have a job to do. We have to, we have to, we have to take a stand. We have to show solidarity. And we have to hope that the powers that be will address it accordingly. And that's what the head coach did. And I think if you look at that, the players follow the lead of their head coach. Because I can believe that, that personally, they're seething. That they wanted to go, I mean, you know, these are big guys, not small guys. Yep. They wanted to go and say, let me let me put some, some of this brawn on them. They're right. also pursuing their dream. Right, right. But I want to let that be the last word real quick. Joe Williams, always Thank good you, to man. have you. Thank, Thank you for allowing me to be here. Now, we appreciate your insight. Thank you very much, Joe Williams. When we come back, we're going to change the schedule a little bit. We're going to talk a little bit about Representative, Representative Graham from New York. He's been indicted and put in custody by his former employer. We're going to talk about the thuggery of politics up in the New England Northeast area. When we come back, this is Backroom Politics. Stay with us. You know, for those who listen to Backroom Politics and know about Shelley's Backroom, they think of it as some sort of cigar bar where politicians go to smoke their cigars and drink their martinis. Actually, what you don't know about Shelly's Back Room, Shelly's Back Room has one of the greatest menus in the city. I kid you not. You've got the campfire wings, famous campfire wings, one pound of roasted, not fried, seasoned marinated jumbo chicken rings served with their own special honey mustard sauce. Folks, if you like chicken wings, You've never had the Campfire Wings. Best wings in the city, bar none, I guarantee. If you don't like it, Al, you can call us up and tell us that you don't like it. Uh, You have daily specials. Come down on a day when they have the Justin Chicken Sandwich. The sandwich named after me. Breaded chicken breast, provolone cheese, thick-cut bacon on a Kaiser roll served with a honey mustard sauce. Folks, it doesn't get more artery-clogging than that. But it is worth it. Come down to Shelley's Back Room, 1331 F Street, in the heart of our nation's capital, Washington, D.C., the premier sponsor of Backroom Politics.
by the way, we're we're live again, Bob. Thanks, hot mic. This is back from politics live from Shelley's back room, 1331 Street in the heart of running Capital, capital, Washington, D.C. Uh, you can join the conversation by calling toll-free 877-662-3713, or you can tweet your questions at BackroomPolitik on Twitter, or you can email justin at BackroomPolitics.org, and they'll get right to me. Uh, quick segment change. We were talking about... Uh, the representative out of the great jurisdiction of New York City, out of um, out of Staten Island, uh, Congressman Grimm, the Republican, uh, the only Republican representing Lower New York State, and uh, well, apparently yesterday he turned himself into his former employer. Congressman Grimm is a former FBI special agent. Congressman Grimm is also the owner of a a health food restaurant in the Upper East Side of Manhattan, and apparently now. He is indicted on several counts, including wire fraud, including uh, uh, perjury, non-payment of taxes. Uh, There's all kinds. There are 20 counts in the indictment released by the U.S. Attorney's Office of the Southern District of New York. Uh, But this brings up, I mean, first of all, let's talk about Congressman Grimm. Congressman Grimm first came on the national radar scene after he went after a New York One reporter threatening to throw him off the balcony of the rotunda of the Cannon House office building after he asked the congressman about the investigation. Uh, it is video footage that's seen all throughout the country. But the, but the thing, notice how, how big the congressman was and how little the reporter was. Well, he's still a special agent. I mean, the guy who's I mean, the guy's not a badass. But I mean, you know, he obviously is. But here's here's the surprising thing about it is. It is a continuation of congressmen continuing to get themselves in trouble. Now, many are saying that a lot of these indictments are based off of his life previous to being elected as a congressman. So the question comes up, Bob Hines, is this, is this a vetting issue? Is this something? I mean, he had to have known at some point that he might be the subject of an investigation if you're not paying your taxes and you're committing wire fraud. Is this a vetting issue, Bob? Uh, well, you know, sometimes people think that they can get away with stuff because they've been getting away with stuff. And they think they won't get caught. And they just think, I can, you know, just uh, tough it out. I think that's probably where he was. He sounds like that kind of a fellow. And, uh, you know, he's a former FBI guy, and he's a pretty tough fellow. And I think he probably thought he could get away with it. And, but what, what, he's, what he's really done is embarrassed himself terribly. He's probably uh, going to, be, uh, he's going to be, in tr- be in trial the next few months, probably. He is going to lose his congressional seat if he, if he, can, if he decides. To, I, I know he's already filed his papers, but I would, ex- I would assume that that seat will change hands very quickly in the election. And uh, he'll be out of the, he'll be out of office, and he'll be in jail. Several sources, including the Washington Post and our friends over at Politico and Bloomberg, were reporting earlier that uh, Congressman Graham was literally scrambling this morning to get phone time with GOP leadership. Uh, number one, Alan Moore is he, and this may be a stretch, but is he, along with being an embarrassment to himself, an embarrassment to the bureau, his former employer? and an embarrassment to his district, is, is he an embarrassment to the party? 
Well, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you bet. Every time, every time somebody with a D or an R behind their name gets into trouble, the party suffers. There's just no way to get around it. Um, but you know that doesn't mean it's it's a, an irreversible damage to the party because if that were true, there would have been a whole history of irreversible damage from Democrats <laughs> and Republicans over the history of time. But but we don't uh, want to talk about Congressman Jefferson. He, I mean, he's just an idiot, and he's now in the denial period um, where he's trying to scramble and figure out if there's some way that he can hang on, and it sure doesn't look like it. But he's not there yet, and he's got to get there. Um, and and uh, this is this is such a common pattern where you're caught, you're called out, you deny, you resist, you fight, you threaten, and then a twenty count indictment comes down, and you turn yourself over, and you're still trying to hang on to something. But uh, he's done. That's um, when you announce that you're giving up drink and you've turned to God. That's <laughs> exactly right. That's, that's, that's something that... Spoken like a former well, member. It, no, <laughs> I want to get to that. I want to get to that. But it's also something that, that people, you know, yesterday and the day before were wondering about, about Donald Sterling. Is he going to come forward and say, that's not me. I, it was drink. It was a brain tumor. It was an illness. It was something that I'm going to seek treatment for. Um, I, it, his, he, his situation was irrevocable. I think Grimm's is irrevocable. But, but Al's absolutely right that the, drink, the drinking defense is the most common one. Carl Tubin. Well, first of all, from what I've read, he had this, this um, um, restaurant before he was elected to Congress. Yes, correct. But he continued the pattern once he was elected. And you only have to look at many years ago, uh, Vice President um, Agnew. Agnew, who was taking money from a, a Baltimore builder, uh, cash, in the governor's office, and he went to the White House and he said, well, you know, I could keep doing it. And, and, and Harriman used to bring this uh, the cash to him in the White House and hand it to him. You know, finally, they got rid of him. For that, for that purpose, I mean, you know, and they got rid of him before Nixon resigned, so he wouldn't be vice president. You know, it's it's funny. You know, we you bring up uh, Congressman Grimm's uh, website, and obviously there's no talk about this on his website, his official House website. I'm surprised it's still up. Denise Kraft. Oh, but oh my goodness, I can't believe I'm saying this. He was very good with constituents. He was, I mean, that, that's how I knew him, was the maritime work that he did and the support that he was giving. Um, for the Staten Island Ferry and the yes, new safety rights. Staten Island Ferry, what he did for the uh, the flood insurance. Was he in the Coast Guard? No, no, no. Oh, he's thank God, huh? No, 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 <laughs> no. No, because no, that would have that that been top billing if he had been. <laughs> Go ahead, Denise. I know, but, you know, he did a lot of good work, and I, I think that's what's frustrating to a lot of voters is you do a lot of good. And then all of a sudden, you do a lot of bad. And it's hard to reconcile. Like, how can you do so much good that helps people, but then you screw up and you do what you did? But comes from now, you know, we look at somebody like Michael Grimm. You know, here's a guy who is a well-respected FBI agent in the New York field office, had a very successful career as an agent. He, he as Denise said, 
had an incredible popularity with his constituency in Staten Island. And on top of the fact that this is a guy who many thought would have been a good Northeast Republican to possibly come up in the leadership. But it also goes back to the fact that he thought that he was above the law. How does a member of Congress justify in, your, in their minds that, hey, I may be above the law. Nobody's going to touch me. I'm a congressman. They live in a milieu in which, if they are subject to it, it is easy to develop a sense of entitlement. I mean, the fact that he was... Was this, a, was this a sense of entitlement, do you think? Well, I, I can't read his mind, but it, it has all the earmarks of a sense of entitlement. Saying you're going to throw a, a, a reporter off the balcony uh, kind of says, you know, I'm too important to have you little twerp uh, asking me questions like that. Yes, it has a, it has a uh, earmarks of it. I think <clears throat> because in the 16 years that I was in Congress, uh, the little gremlin crept up on me a couple of times, and I think I was capable of pushing it away and making it go away. But uh, you, you, you work hard. You, in my case, you fly across the country and back at least once a week. Uh, you you uh, deal with uh, having to raise a whole bunch of money while you're trying to pass decent legislation, while other things are going on, while you're being criticized in the press, and all of that. And out of this, you can easily develop things. Look, look at all of the that I'm doing for the people, and look how they're treating me, and that develops into a kind of sense of entitlement. Uh, and it's, it's pernicious. It's very, very bad. They are not entitled to anything special. Uh, and if they don't like the job, they should stop doing it, uh, just quit. Uh, but it's, it's a danger, and it, it's something that every member of Congress has to watch. I will add this. <clears throat> Being an FBI agent may have contributed to that, but we've had on this program a former congressman who was a former FBI agent, uh, Mike... Um, my good friend, Mike Oxley. Mike, Mike Oxley. Oxley. Yeah. yeah. And and Mike never showed anything like that as a congressman or since. So this is not necessary. This is not a, a criticism of the FBI. Alan Moore. It seems to me in this particular case that his, his sins had had, had pre-existed his uh, election, and they were about money. And you start. I mean, we're talking a million dollars. You start figuring that you have worked out a way to cheat the system, and you're even an FBI agent who kind of knows what they're looking for, and you think you're more clever. You got away with it, so why would you stop if you still have the business once you're elected? Uh, and it's like Carl said, Spiro Agnew was taking envelopes of cash, which he knew was wrong, while he was governor, but. So did the person giving him the cash know it was wrong. That person was still willing to give the cash. Come on down. Hand it over. And, and you start believing it. Money and sex, and as we've learned in that earlier segment, saying horrible, hateful, bigoted things are all things that if you kind of have gotten away with them for a long time, then why change? And the more that people treat you like you're important, that's when this sense of entitlement, and you think, I'm stronger now 
than I used to be. This is cool. But Denise Crabb, I mean, this is a guy who hid a million dollars worth of revenue that he never even reported to anybody, perjured himself, and on top of the fact, uh, continued to hinder the investigation. He was released on a $400,000 bond. And he, he calls it a political witch hunt. <laughs> Does it surprise you, the arrogance that you see in these members of Congress, particularly in this case, where all of a sudden, you know, you know you're, you, they got you by the short hairs, they're going to come out and say it's a political witch hunt? No, it, it doesn't. I mean, it, it goes to what Congressman Al was talking about a few minutes ago. If, if you're in your own little bubble and everybody's telling you how wonderful you are, then it comes quite a surprise when somebody says, not only are you not wonderful, but what you've done is illegal. And, and that's the problem. I mean, I, I saw it when I was on the Hill as a staffer, and then I also saw it within the administration. I mean, when you develop a sense of entitlement and somebody dares to say you are wrong, then automatically the person who is wrong is not you. It's the person who tells you that you are wrong. Uh, you know, it, it's funny. Uh, the new, our friends at the uh, New York Daily News uh, put a quote by the Brooklyn U.S. Attorney, Loretta Lynch, who is, I mean, she's a pit bull when it comes to this stuff. Uh, U.S. Attorney for Brooklyn, uh, Loretta Lynch, said, quote, Michael Grimm had a choice faced by every business owner in America. He could have done it honestly, and he cheated his way to success. She continued, Grimm made the choice to go front, or go from upholding the law to breaking it. That is a seething indictment by the U.S. Attorney in Brooklyn against uh, a seated member of Congress, Bob. Yeah, and thank God she's doing it. Listen, you know, let's step back for a minute. You know, it, we always, when something like this comes up, when a congressperson gets in trouble, you know, we say, oh, my gosh. But, you know, there's 535 of those folks up there, men and women of all races and colors and religions, and they are doing a hell of a job when they can. They're doing as best they can do. It's very difficult right now. We all know that because of, of the difficulty within the House of Representatives. But the fact of the matter is, these are really these are people who are good people in the, by far, and they are doing the best job they can do. Most of them are 99% clean as they can be. You got a few bad ones, and the fact of the matter is, I'm very glad that when they do get identified, they're called out, they're, they're called on the carpet. They get they, they're going to get defeated in the in the election. They're going to get convicted. They're going to go to jail, and that's the way it should be. Congressman Al. I want to add to my earlier remarks about being there and slowly becoming entitled. <clears throat> I don't want anyone to think that's a good argument for term limits. Uh, there are so many things wrong with term limits that we don't have time to go into them now. But I would like to point out that we had on the air last week, Bob Michael. Right. Served 30 years. 38 years. 38 years in the as, as a senior Republican, and there has never been a breath of scandal about him. And we had on this program John Dingle, who is uh, the most senior man ever to serve in the Congress, about whom there has never been a breath of scandal. Uh, so that it's not it's not it's it's not something that happens to everybody and it doesn't need to happen to anybody. It happens very rarely, but when it happens, thank God, we catch them. But Denise, Denise Crap, I mean, 
we're seeing now, I mean, we saw a, we, we've seen ethics uh, investigations on uh, freshman congressman Mark Wayne Mullen. We've seen uh, now the indictment against Michael Grimm, a sophomore, in serving the beginning of his second term as a member of Congress. It almost seems like the old school players get the fact we're not above the law, but the new school players are almost looking at it like, oh, I can negotiate my way out of this. No harm, no foul. No, I, I, no. <laughs> there are a lot of new people here who don't have that sentiment. I, I think that, like in life, you have good apples and you have bad apples. And unfortunately, some bad apples got elected, and they're now about to be removed. And while they're being removed, you have a lot of good apples that are staying and are doing good work. So I, I wouldn't say that it, this is a new, newer generation and it's a new thought process. I think, unfortunately, maybe a couple of extra bad apples got put into the bushel that came in with this class. Uh, Alan Moore? Um, I, I, I want to comment a little more, I'm reflecting on what Al said about the longer people are there, uh, and if they're 99% good, um, let's just, as, as a concept, people working hard, trying to do the right thing, but they're up here. People treat them like they're important. They they bow to them. They give them money when they ask. They treat them with a lot of respect. And it can have a seductive effect. And temptations may come your way. Um, for many male uh, members, the temptation may come in the form of, of female attention. Um, many will say, <laughs> nope, not interested. But some will say from time to time, yeah, or some guys will be pursuing that temptation. Money can come, gifts can come, fancy dinners can come. And, the, and, and there's this mindset that I know I'm clean and pure. What does one fancy steak dinner or a couple of front row tickets to a sports event uh, matter? But it feeds on itself. And then you get, and I was thinking as we were talking about this, former Senate Majority Leader Tom Daschle, an enormously talented man who lost uh, an election back in 2005, I think, um, and, or 2003. And, and uh, he went off. He was not going to lobby. He was going to join a big firm. He was going to advise people. So he wouldn't have to register as a lobbyist because that's such a distasteful thing in the minds of some. But what his sin was, was taking up a major Democratic fundraiser on an offer to use his car here in Washington and driver when that guy wasn't around, which was most of the time because that guy lived in New York. I got this car. I got this driver. Why don't you use it when I'm not around? Tom Daschle thinks... Free car and driver. Sounds pretty good. I had that in the Senate. I think I'll use that now. That mindset that allowed him to sort of look away and think, what's the problem with this? What was wrong with his antenna? He used it, and it stopped him from playing a major role in the Obama administration. He would have been Secretary of HHS. He might have been Chief of Staff in the White House. A very talented guy who got caught up in this notion that, gee, somebody offers me something, that'll be fine because I know how good and clean I am, and I think he is. It's just that he had this massive blind spot that I think was a function of having been so important in getting used to some of these perks. Carl Tuvin. Unfortunately, this isn't the first, and it won't be the last. And the only way this can change 
is if the two parties really make a point of teaching the new members that there's certain things that you can't do and, and point out what has happened before and maybe, maybe the people will do the right thing. They teach it. They teach it in the they freshman class. They freshman, take them away. Freshman they, class orientation. They, yeah. teach, they teach it at Harvard. They teach it everywhere. Um, and people say, think, yeah, 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 I'd never do that. And then temptation shows up uh, two years later or five years later, and it's like, not a big deal. Yeah, no the new, the, When the new members come in, the leadership is sitting down with them, and they're talking about just this kind of problem. And they're telling them what they can and can't do. They're reminding them how dangerous it gets. You know, you know, they they do everything they can for one, for an obvious reason. You don't want these guys or gals to start making mistakes. Denise, you were congressional counsel uh, during his freshman term uh, as a member of Congress. Does Michael Grimm re uh, resign, or does he rise to that because he, in his mind, right or wrong, thinks it's a political wind shunt? He's resigning. You think he's going to resign? He has to. Okay, Bob, you agree? I think he will have to do so. Congressman Al? It'd be the smart thing to do. Alan Moore? I don't know enough. It wouldn't surprise me if he serves out the term, if he says, I'm not going to run again the way uh, McAllister did, has done down in Louisiana. His was a sexual thing. Um, I, I just don't know how, how powerful the evidence is. He, it's nice if he still has a job and a paycheck. Um, but but got to pay uh, for those legal bills. Well, <laughs> uh, so so I wouldn't surprise me if he if Carl Tubin. Uh, the only way he's going to be the only way he's going to resign is if the Republican leadership forces him to resign. That was what I was about to say. I think the leadership, seeing what's going on here. Will probably well, the fact that they're not taking his calls is probably yeah, pretty yeah, indicative yeah. of what leadership is saying. Yeah. <laughs> they, they don't have the power to force no, him out. They no, they can no. pressure him, they and they're not they're, they're not they're giving him coverage him. either. My guess is they'll remove him from every committee, and he'll just sit there. Okay. Well, we're going, to, we're going to let that be the last word. When we come back, we're going to talk about the Obama administration's continued campaign for higher minimum wages. We're going to be talking with noted author and political economist, Dr. Orrin Levin-Waldman. This is Backroom Politics Live from Shelley's Backroom, 1331 F Street, in the heart of our nation's capital, Washington, D.C. By the way, it's happy hour. We're going to order our martinis. We're going to order our drinks, cut our cigars open, and we'll be back for the second hour right after this. Stay with us. You know, here on Backroom Politics, you hear us order drinks uh, during happy hour, the second hour of Backroom Politics, live on Blog Talk Radio. But what you don't understand is the quality of the drink that we're getting here at Shelley's Backroom, 1331 F Street, in the heart of our nation's capital, Washington, D.C. Backroom Politics premier sponsor. Hey, you got Dave Hammerly and the bar crew there at Shelley's Backroom that really know how to pour a drink. Whether it's something simple like my on-air Jack Daniels on the rocks with a splash of water, or whether it's something elaborate like what has to be the best martini in the District of Columbia for Congressman Al Swift. Wine selection, scotch selection that will blow your mind. They've got Highland scotches. They've got Isla Sky scotches blended, single malt, anything you want Port wines to go with that great cigar from the great humidor. Down here at Shelley's Back Room, 
1331 F Street in the heart of our nation's capital, Washington, D.C. Come on down, have a drink, and make some new friends. Or heck, just come on down and listen to Backroom Politics on Tuesdays. Shelley's Back Room, 1331 F Street, in the heart of our nation's capital, Washington, D.C. This is Back Room Politics Live on Blog Talk Radio. Joining us right now, he is a noted author. He is noted political economist. He is a professor of public policy and public administration at Metropolitan College of New York. He is the author of Wage Policy, Income Distribution, and Democratic Theory. He is Dr. Orrin Levin-Waldman. Dr. Waldman, thanks for joining us tonight, sir. Thank you. Dr. Waldman, you know, we've, we've been seeing the president uh, out on his campaign to uh, bring a national higher minimum wage standard to uh, all 50 states. Uh, he's already imposed an administrative action on uh, increasing the minimum wage for federal contractors. In, in, in your view, it, is, is there a justification? We hear both sides of it's, it's, it's bad for business, it's good for business. You're a noted expert on that. What do you think, sir? 
Um, first of all, the, the president's uh, uh, executive order only has a limited impact. It only affects those who have contracts with the federal government. So right. the scope is fairly limited. Um, as far as a national minimum wage, that still requires an act of Congress. Um, Congress has to mandate that through legislative action. Um, as far as um, whether it's a good policy, it hasn't been raised since uh, 2007. So it currently stands at 7.25 an hour, and when you stop to consider the median wage in 2013 was about 19.23 an hour, or the average annual hourly earning was actually 24 $5.40 an hour for a full-time wage earner. Um, it's way below, and historically, the minimum wage tended to be pegged at 50% of the average annual hourly earning. So if the minimum wage were to be 50% of that now, it would be 12.70 an hour. So 10.10 is still less than 50% of the average annual hourly earning. But is, so, is, is, is this, along with being a very political issue, but it seems like there is an economic impact to either raising the the minimum wage or keeping it at a manageable level, as some Republicans call it. Uh, is, is this a situation where somewhere in the middle is the truth that we don't have to go all the way to a $20 minimum wage or a $15 minimum wage, but in fact a $10 minimum wage is substandard and puts you still into the living poverty issue? What you have, well, there's several issues that you sort of have to separate one from the other. One, um, the statutory minimum wage. Um, it should really be viewed as a reference point for the low-wage labor market. So what's key here is not who is actually earning the statutory minimum wage. And opponents would like to sort of focus on a narrow segment of the labor market, teenagers who earn maybe the, the statutory minimum wage. Well, we actually know it's not just teenagers. Those earning the wage ranges around the minimum wage, that's what's key. It's what we would call the effective um, minimum wage population. Then we're talking about, you know, 20% of the actual labor market it becomes quite sizable um, at that point. And, you know, the CBO in its recent uh, studies a couple of months ago indicated that a minimum wage increase um, would mean a pay increase of for about 16 million Americans. Um, that's, that's nothing to sneeze at. That's, that's, that's actually quite beneficial. The other thing I think that we sort of need to focus on is what would the impact of a minimum wage increase be? Um, data suggests that if you look at w wages in terms of what we call wage contours or what we would call intervals, you know, say take the minimum wage, go 25% above that, then take another interval and go 25% above that, and so on and so forth. Looking at data for, say, 40 years, um, I actually found that when you, in years when the minimum wage was increased, um, median wages also increased. And when the minimum wage was not increased, median wages in various intervals stayed flat. That would suggest that we're talking about the potential for not just low-wage earners to get pay increases. We're talking about the potential for the middle class to get um, um, pay increases and to actually break um, the wage stagnation that we have seen in the last uh, three decades. Uh, but when we look at when we look at this as as a broad national level uh, issue, one of the things that strikes me is in in looking at it from the political aspect is when I read about this particular subject, it seems that 
the broad arena of economists are very divided about whether the minimum wage will actually increase unemployment or actually decrease it and give people an, a living wage. Where's the disparity with the economists on this issue? Um, there hasn't been clarity for, for many years, and it's really if the data is ambiguous at best. I mean, what you have are people do studies based on current population survey data, which is Census Bureau data. It's individual level data where you're looking at, um, at various points in time. And what they do is they say they look at year one before minimum wage increase takes effect, year two after it takes effect, and they look for employment consequences. Has there been a change in employment levels? Um, and what the data generally shows is if you look at specific groups like teenagers, then there may be um, a tendency to have lower levels of employment for teenagers. If you look at groups older than teenagers, there tends to be no unemployment effect resulting from um, minimum wage increases. Now, the problem that we have is the data is really not good data. We don't really have firm level data. We don't really have data where we've actually gone out and surveyed firms to find out how they respond responded to past increase in the minimum wage or how they would respond to a subsequent increase in the minimum wage. So basically, then we're, we're modeling um, predictions based on data, which is not the best data. Is, is, is the claim by some in the economic community that the minimum wage is lower even at 10.10 an hour? than it was, let's say, when in the 1970s this first came to fruition? Uh, because, in fact, is it correct that the minimum wage is not tied into or indexed by inflation? Um, the, the argument is that were the minimum wage to have been indexed to inflation, say, um, three decades ago, and actually it was proposed initially during the 70s that it would be indexed to inflation uh, while Carter was pre still president, um, then, then the minimum wage probably would be hovering around 10, 10 an hour, maybe, maybe higher at this point. Um, so, um, and needless to say, um, had it been indexed to inflation, um, one, you would have removed the politics from the issue. People's wages would have been going up, and employers would be able to plan. They would know to expect, okay, they'd have to raise wages by two or three percent. Um, you know, as opposed to when when Congress does act it'll be a 25 to 30 percent increase. That, that's quite dramatic in the minds of many employers. Uh, Alan Moore, you have a question? Yeah, I'd like to get, get your comment on two things. Uh, the, the benefits of a national minimum wage versus state-by-state -state minimum wages that reflect local conditions. The other thing I'd like you to comment on, since all we're talking about is the minimum, minimum wage, going back to the 70s, is all of the other income support programs that have built up during that period, the earned income tax credit, the child tax credit, food stamps, just to name three big ones. And now, of course, with Obamacare's expansion and the, and the, and the extraordinary subsidies for people at the low end and expansion of Medicaid, basically there are other income support programs for people at the low end that, that, can, that, that are actually in value larger than the take-home wage. So I'd like you to comment on both those things, please. Okay, I mean, those are, those are very good points, and I think, uh, let me see if I can dissect that a little bit and sort of, you know, uh, tell you where I think we are. Um, you know, when you pay a substandard wage, lower wage, um, in, in effect, you're imposing a social cost on the rest of society. 
we all basically have to pick up the tab and subsidize those low wages with subsidies to these workers, whether it be in the form of an earned income tax credit, whether it be in the form of food stamps or whatever. Um, now, you know, why the argument might be made that were you to increase the minimum wage, uh, these workers would then become more independent, more self-sufficient, and maybe less dependent on the government. So even if you are paying higher wages, maybe you could compensate by lowering taxes um, in that regard if they don't have to pay as much for, for various um, social services. Now, in terms of the other hot-button issue right now, which is um, rising um, income inequality, if, if one actually looks at the data and compares over the years, um, you know, 10th percentile to 90th percentile, one would find that the, the, the ratio between the top 90th and the low, bottom 10th in terms of wages, actual wages, is larger than the ratio of the top 90th to the bottom 10th percentile in terms of income itself. In other words, and if you just look at the, the bottom uh, percentile in income, 10th percentile in income to the top 90th, um, the, the ratio is actually much lower. Why would that be? Largely because people at the bottom 10th are, are receiving those various income subsidies uh, and whatnot. So you, you do have a question that you, you sort of have to address. You know, from a public policy standpoint, what is preferable to subsidize um, workers who earn low wages um, or to pay workers a higher wage and perhaps eliminate the subsidies, allowing them to be more self-sufficient? Well, that would be interesting if anybody who was proposing to raise the minimum wage was uh, principally Senator Tom Harkin from Iowa, if he was also trying to couple that with saying, and let's cut back food stamps, the earned income tax credit, the child tax credit. He's not. They want both and in their calculus. They just choose to ignore the cost and value of all of those other income support programs. Um, that's I don't disagree with that. I think that uh, um, I think what you'll find is that both sides of the political aisle end up talking past each other, um, and they're not really cutting to the uh, crux of the issue. But Dr. Walden, you know, some some economists have stated that if if you were to let's say increase the earned income tax credit for large families, like what they did in the stimulus bill, uh, that 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 1.4 billion dollars, by some instances, would go to poor families and help either supplement or uh, divert that lack of an increased minimum wage. Is there merit to that proposal? Um, you know, you could subsidize the low, low wages of, um, of people at the bottom with the earned income tax credit. That, that has been the, the tactic um, going back to, to the 90s when, when President Clinton expanded the EITC. Um, I think, but there's some certain problems that we need to be aware of uh, when you do that. When you have an earned income tax credit and you expand it, one might ask the question: Are you not, in effect, subsidizing employers' ability to pay low wages? They have no incentive to raise their workers' wages if if workers can get a subsidy from from the government. And in terms of the morale of the workers, um, one wonders if one wouldn't feel better if they're getting most of their pay from their employer as opposed to getting 40% or 45% in value from, their, from, the, from the federal government. Um, so these are, these are issues that, that, that clearly need to be looked at. Carl, it only applies to people with families. It doesn't really apply to people um, who are single. 
Carl Tubin, you have a question for Dr. Waldman. Yeah, Dr. Waldman, uh, there was an idea flooded that I heard over the weekend where <clears throat> they would uh, go from the $7 in some sense and over three years raise it into the, uh, the $10 and uh, 10 cents. Uh, how do you think that's a good idea? That's the proposal. That's a proposal that's right now in the Obama government. administration. I, I guess the question, Dr. Wallman, is, you know, is it, is it economically beneficial to the business community at risk for it to be a gradual stagnated increase from the current, let's say, the average right now of 797 75 up to 850 up to 925 up to 1010 or is it better just to just take the bite out of the apple and go straight to 1010 and have to uh, plan for that in the, in the outlying years? Um, public, well, public policy in the United States tends to be incremental at best, um, and politically speaking, that's probably as best as you're ever going to get is that, that graduated, those graduated steps. Um, from a policy standpoint, yeah, it, it's, it, it, it's a good approach. Um, so if employers know that a certain percentage of is going to occur this year, certain percent is going to occur in the following year and the subsequent year, um, they can plan for it. But from a, going forward, I think what you need to do is you need to tag it to, to the to you have to index it to inflation or, or some kind of productivity index um, so um, it doesn't fall behind in value. Alan Moore, another question for Dr. Yeah. Walden. How, how do you deal with the, uh, the, the CBO estimate that probably if you go the 1010 route over three years, that you lose about 500,000 jobs? Um, first of all, the CBO didn't say that you would lose 500,000 jobs. They said you could lose 500,000 jobs. Well, they say you could lose you know, between very few and a million. So the, the midpoint that they, that they typically referred to is 500,000. Um, but the question, the question remains, what do they mean by losing 500,000 jobs? Did they, were they referring to an actual disemployment effect where employers lay workers off? Or were they working, were referring to the fact that employers might create fewer low-wage jobs, in which case employment would be lower? That, that's the question. Uh, yeah, and, I, and my understanding of the data is that it's, that, it, that it's a combination, that there would be fewer people hired and that some people currently working would be laid off. But the point is that at the end of the day, 500,000 fewer people would be working with that proposal um, than with current law. And then I think they, did a, they also did an estimate if you took it up to $9 an hour. I mean, the, the, there are these consequences that... that uh, that make this a far harder call um, than some of the proponents uh, would, would seem to indicate. It's like there's a free lunch here. Who cares? Who pays? Where's the money come from? Why not go to $15 an hour? Dr. Waldman. I don't think it's a question of a free lunch here, and I don't I, – I, obviously there are consequences or unintended consequences to any public policy that you would pursue. And all, all we economists can really do is present information for policymakers to, to make, a, make a decision, and they have to weigh the cost and the benefits. The CBO study said it could lead to 500,000 fewer jobs. They didn't necessarily say it would, and then they said they wanted to highlight the fact that still the economy would prosper more so as the benefits would outweigh um, the actual cost. And I would argue to the extent that 
a minimum wage could benefit the broader middle class um, in that wages across the board could rise. My data suggested up to 70% of the labor force could see pay increases as a result of rising minimum wages. Um, that, that suggests that you would actually be expanding the purchasing power of the middle class, that they can actually increase the demand for goods and services in the, in the aggregate is what the economy needs. That's what grows the economy. That's what ultimately creates jobs. In the long term, you will see a readjustment um, and that those 500,000 people will ultimately be reabsorbed back to, into the economy. Congressman Al Swift, question for Dr. Waldman. I, I, I'm a Democrat and I've always supported uh, increases in the minimum wage. Uh, but one of the things that troubled, and, and I must say I'm even more uh, interested in it now that you indicate that it's also going to help uh, the middle class, which is the, the group that I'm primarily worried about. But Congress is made up of laymen. Uh, you, you got a scientist here and a medical man there and, and a couple of economists and what have you, and we, we have trouble sorting out the different opinions of, uh, in, in, uh, of economists. I w had the unhappy pleasure of sitting next to Phil Graham uh, on the uh, House Energy and Commerce Committee for several years. And he had the habit of whenever somebody else was talking about something else, uh, of drawing me all kinds of schematic things explaining <laughs> economic theory to me. I never understood what he said, but I never agreed with anything he had in, that I did understand, so I assume I wouldn't have agreed with his economic analysis either. What, what guideline can a poor layman congressman with no special training in economics, what guideline can they use to try to figure out which economist is, uh, is, is at least reinforcing their idea of what social policy should be? Um, I suppose you could start by inviting me to testify before Congress, and I could probably present it to English if that, uh, that would be helpful. I'm, so, I'm sorry, what was that, Dr. Waldman? I, was going to, I would suggest you invite me to testify before Congress, and then I could, uh, you know, offer to testify in English if that's helpful. Um, you know, look, it's, I understand, you know, um, Senator Graham was a, what we would call a standard neoclassical um, economist who presented the standard text of the minimum wage. And, uh, you know, those who... Um, you know, the economic language is not comprehensible to, to most people, and if you start presenting it in terms of models and, uh, you know, supply and demand curves, and I, I can see where a lot of lay people's eyes are going to sort of gloss over. Um, you know, that's, that, 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 that's inevitable. But I, I think, you know, from a political standpoint, um, if you present the minimum wage as a middle-class issue, I think it's a more sellable point as opposed to the standard, you know, the liberal democratic uh, model of it helps the poor, uh, which we tend to stigmatize, um, or the, the standard conservative Republican model is a, is a result in a disemployment effect among youth, particularly, and hurts small business. Um, we don't really know what the impact is of, of small business. I can tell you from surveys that I did in the 1990s of small business that um, following um, um, the increases that took place in 96 and 
97 or 97-98, that um, most small businesses did not uh, reduce their their, their workforces. And when we asked subsequently, when the minimum wage was actually raised to 425 an hour, and we asked them, would they be impacted, uh, were it raised to $6 an hour at the time, um, and very few indicated that it would affect them, those who indicated it would affect them indicated they would be less likely to hire future workers, as they would be less likely to create jobs, um, that, but that, that not that they would necessarily fire people. And I think that's a key, key difference that, that we need to look at. But, but here, thank, thank you. I, I, I just like one thing. Would you, would you tell me again what the proper name for the kind of economist Phil Graham was? Because I'm informed that I can't use my description <laughs> of it anymore. A neoclassical <laughs> economist. Thank you. <laughs> okay. Denise Krepp, question for Dr. Waldman. Dr. Waldman, this is Denise. I, I guess the question I have for you is, when you start talking about the 90s, the one difference we have between the 90s and today is that we've just implemented Obamacare, and you have a lot of small businesses uh, still struggling with implementing it. So if you're struggling with implementing Obamacare, and then you have raised uh, the minimum wage, what does that do to small businesses, and what is the cost to them, and have economists looked at that double whammy to make sure that small businesses can continue to thrive because they are the generator of the economy? I mean, it's a good question. I don't think we have any way of measuring uh, what the impact of that will be and what the impact of Obamacare in conjunction with uh, uh, an increase in the wage would happen to be. Uh, what, I, what I think we, we, we can probably um, infer is that, you know, um, that those businesses that opt to pay a fine for the workers as opposed to providing uh, insurance, um, uh, workers, um, even with the subsidies, still will not be able to afford insurance unless they get some kind of increase in the bank. So I, I think that's, uh, that's a fair um, inference um, to make. Um, with regards to, with regards to um, health policy generally, I think the argument would be that it's, in that case it's probably better to have a single-payer system where um, you know, it's taken care of. Dr. Uh, Dr. Wallman, when when we look at all of the analysis, either coming out of the CBO or out of every economist across the country, we talk about the creation of jobs, we talk about the unemployed. The one factor that I have not seen brought out, or at least highlighted in a lot of this, is the impact of increasing the minimum wage for the underemployed, those who have voluntarily left the workforce for whatever reason. Is, is that a consideration when looking at minimum wage? Has that been taken into consideration in any of the studies that you've been a part of or any that you've seen? Well, I mean, economists will tell you that um, it's perhaps because of the underemployed that you may see a rise in the level of unemployment because a higher minimum wage would tend to attract those maybe who have left the labor market, those who are back into the labor market, those who are um, who have been working part-time to try to look for more full-time work, in which case uh, you know, your official definition changes. So um, we, we could see that, but we, again, we don't know what the impact is. I think what we really need to see is we need to see some data that's collected on the behavior of employers. Until we, we really collect that kind of data, we're not really going to have a, a real handle on the issue. Okay. 
but but how how does the president? I mean, the president's going forward with his minimum wage campaign at, at a pretty aggressive level, but it seems though he's going forward with a proposal that has some of America's economists, noted economists, at odds with each other. How how do we bridge that gap between implementing the policy and the campaign of the White House versus the disparity between economists across the country? Well, I, I think it would be fair to point out that um, among those economists who are at odds with each other, many of those who, while they were at, at, at odds with each other, signed the petition um, that was put out by the Economic Policy Institute calling for the president and Congress to support an increase in the minimum wage of 10 10 an hour. Um, and many of these economists said, well, I, I still believe in the uh, supply and demand curve. I still believe in the standard model, but I still think the minimum wage should be raised to 10 10 an hour because it's the right thing to do. So, uh, you know... Uh, you know, the, the point is, the living wage is, is too low, and people can't live, um, they can't support their families on the current minimum wage. And I think we have to ask ourselves, what kind of society do we want to be? Um, that, 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 that's really the underlying question that, that really has to be addressed. Very, very good. We're going to let that be the last word. Uh, again, uh, Dr. Waldman, thank you very much for joining us. He, uh, he's a... Uh, uh, Dr. Orrin Levin Waldman, he is noted political economist, and we've been talking about the president's uh, minimum wage campaign. Dr. Waldman, thanks for joining us. Hope to have you on again. Thank you. Have a good day. Have a good week. Uh, when we come back, we're going to go open mic. Anything that we want to talk about around the table, and we'll go into Tell Me a Story. This is Backroom Politics Live from Shelley's Backroom, 1331 F Street in the heart of our nation's capital, Washington, D.C. We'll be back in three minutes. Stay with us. Wow, a little bit of Fats Waller, Lulu back in town, and I, I tell you, when I am back in town, or when any of my friends are back in town, or heck, when we're living here in town, we usually find ourselves down at Shelley's Back Room, 1331 F Street, in the heart of our nation's capital, Washington, D.C., right across from the National Press Club. Why do we come here? Well, they've got the city's best cigar menu. The most diversified with some of the best known brands and some that you might even know, but you might want to give it a try. Everything from Arturo Fuentes down to Zeno. You can go all the way from your $9 little petite girly flavored cigars all the way up to the Opus X Lost City. They have a cigar for everybody. Mild, medium, strong, heavy. However you want to smoke it, it's available here at Shelly's Back Room. Come in, have Bob, Na, or any one of the girls show you what the right cigar might be for your taste that evening. Again, Shelly's Back Room, 1331 F Street in the heart of our nation's capital, Washington, D.C. As Bob likes to put it, it is definitely the place to be. You can tell the mailman not to call I ain't coming home until the fall And again I might not get back home at all Lulu's back in town
say she can get around, no. Tell the mailman not to call. He's coming home until the fall. And then again, I might not get home at all. Lulu's back in town. Oh, that woman's back in town. Oh, my, 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 my. Unfortunately, we're back live here at Shelley's Back Room, 1331 F Street, in the heart of our nation's capital, Washington, D.C. Al reminiscing about the grand days of sitting on that committee dais. They lashed me to a pole and then lashed me in the, for speaking uncivilly in an earlier section of the program. <laughs> you called a seated, you called a former senator an a hole. <laughs> No, I didn't. I called him an asshole. Don't do it again. Family show. Good Lord. You know, I got to tell you something. You know, here we are. You know, we've been doing this show for three years. You and I have known each other for the better part of six, and we've talked about civility and politics. Yes. And this is what we've ended up with. Well, that's what you get. That's what happens to me when you talk about economists. <laughs> <laughs> I slept through that class. Wow. It was 2 o'clock and I slept through it. That's yeah. why when I was like, you're talking about layman's, you need to because I slept through that class. I could, yeah, I, I, got a, I, I took Econ 101 at Jackson Lee University in 8 a.m. class. Oh, I got to tell you something. Good Lord. That's why, that, that's why we need people like Dr. Exactly. Waldman. They get this stuff. And God knows. And nobody else understands. Nobody else. You can put, you know, the, 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 greatest, the greatest thing I love watching is going into a, a house here and when they have like a whole dais full of economists and they bring the graphs and everybody up on the congressional dais just glazes over and goes, I don't get it. Well. <laughs> that's that's brilliant, and yet, and yet, Alan apparently is writing War and Peace right now, <laughs> or he's he's got his own testimony he's creating. More charts for Al. More charts for Al. <laughs> <laughs> oh man, I, I you know I I got I got to tell you something. You, you know, it, it's funny because you know I mean he's 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 a noted economist, and when we talk to an economist and we talk about something as politically charged as, as minimum wage. I mean, good grief. I mean, you could sit there and tie it in. But what amazes me is none of the economists, including several members of Obama's uh, Board of Economic Advisors, they don't agree. Well, Bob, well, well, you know, the problem is, is it's easy to say what should be the national minimum wage. But in California or in, or in uh, Washington, D.C. or in New York, you're talking about a totally different universe. You have, you know, to me, the only way to do a, a, a minimum wage is to have it, you know, based upon the, the regional economic structure. It should be this level or it should be a higher level. I mean, it's different. And it's different to be in um, rural Arkansas and to be in uh, Cincinnati, Ohio. I mean, I mean, not even name New York or well, California. I mean, you know, you look at like ten ten an hour in North Dakota. I'm living high on the hog. Yeah. Meanwhile, in downtown Washington D.C., I can make ten ten an hour panhandling. Yeah. Uh, and I'm still at the poverty level. Then he's, he, it strikes me that, you know, when we talk about the minimum wage, the, the Obama administration going forth with a national campaign urging all 50 states to raise the minimum wage, it seems that there's a disparity between a minimum wage in L.A. and New York and D.C. versus a minimum wage in Minot, North Dakota. Well, and I 
agree with you. There is a discrepancy. And one example of how they address the discrepancy of cost of living is when you're in the military, your cost of living allowance varies by the area in which you live in. I mean, so well, even the federal employees get that. Exactly. And so that's exactly what ought to be done. Exactly. Yeah. So if you're doing that already, why aren't you looking at your existing model and morphing it to address every other issue? The, the, I mean, this. I mean, what Denise is saying isn't outside the realm of. Wow, that makes sense, Ellen. No, no, no. Well, I raised that question with our guest, and he chose to skip over that one about why a national and why not let states make decisions. Um, it's it's a hard one. Uh, the other word, the other the other word that never showed up in that conversation was inflation. Now, no, I brought we, up inflation. Well, no, no, but I'm saying that 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 you know this notion that let's raise the small the guys at the bottom. We raised them 40 percent back in 2007. There's been no almost no inflation and no increase in wages since then. But we're going to with the proposal is to take it up another 40 percent over the next three years. Now, you you, you typically if you leave the market. Uh, on its own, what triggers uh, increases in wages is increases in productivity. We can order up any set of wages we want. And when he starts talking about it's not just the guys at the bottom, it creeps up into the middle class. There's no increase in productivity that's assured or guaranteed or tied to this. What that brings is inflation. If we, in, if we, if we want to increase everybody's wages 20%, 25 30 35%, 40%, fine. Well, wait a minute, but let's but not pretend that the value of those on, wages okay. is going to be the same, but, but that there's I, not going to be an A inflation. No, but, but Alan, I, here's where I do agree with here's where I do agree with Dr. Waldman is if if you set if the minimum wage is in fact at a higher level, obviously the people at the middle level, the middle level worker, even up on higher, is going to that's going to be the baseline, which means that there's going to be additional wage increases. That Absolutely into the middle class, and I agree Absolutely. with that. Absolutely, it does. But it doesn't mean that the dollar is worth as much. What it creates is inflation. You don't just otherwise we would say everybody we're going to double your wages tomorrow. Aren't you going to be happy? Oh wait, the value of the dollar got cut in half immediately. How did that happen? But, but That's the how economics works. But, but, but Shall I draw you a chart? No, I saw your chart. That was that was. That was it was like romper room. No, but the reality is, I mean, reality. No, but I mean, people say that about the cost of living adjustments that are given to federal employees and military. They say the same thing about consumer price index. You can take any example. Consumer prices are one thing. This is not. This is not a response to the increase in inflation since 2007. That has been about probably a total of about six or seven percent, they want to take the wages up 40 percent. There's no association with price increases or productivity increases. What that brings, and all economists will agree on this, is the potential for inflation. They will argue about how much small businesses can absorb, and it's interesting that this Obamacare responsibility, which is massive, and has had a huge chilling effect on hiring in small, medium, and large businesses is not even being talked about or analyzed, as, as Denise pointed out. There's no free lunch. That's all I'm trying to say. But uh, then, then would you agree with some economists say it's just cheaper to put more money into subsidizing it versus actually increasing the minimum we are, wage? We're, we're, they're trying to do both. They're trying to increase the earned income tax credit, which which is a which is a kicker above whatever your salary is, um, 
and uh, and increase the minimum wage. And 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 they're they are refusing to talk about a smaller increase than the 1010. It's sort of 1010 or nothing, which is also stupid. Bob Hines. My question is, and uh, as, as I say, I think it should be more structured. We should be, we should find ways to make it more accurate. And Denise accurately says the military has a way to do it. If you know, if, if you're in a base, if you're based in an area where it's high cost, you get a bet, you get more benefit than someplace in a, at a low cost. Now that makes sense. Now there's no reason on God's earth. Some industries do that too. Yeah. There's no reason on God's earth that the, the, the government of the United States couldn't do something like that and make it more sensible so that it takes care of those people who live in the high cost areas and those people who live in the middle area and the lower lower cost areas. We, well, we, so we have, a, we have a question from a caller who says, you know, we talk about ultimately uh, we believe that neither party really favor raising the minimum wage regardless of campaign year promises. Why is this different? Why is what different? Why, why is this year different? We we we've seen this uh, this argument about raising the minimum wage has been around forever. It just seems that this year, in a midterm election, the White House has taken it as a national proposal and taken it out to the broad masses. This, this is easy. This is not. New. This is easy. They got new. nothing else. Yeah. Yeah. They have <laughs> no way to increase employment. So it's hey, let's. Give everybody they a pay spent, raise. They spent almost six years in the in the White House, and it, the place has been a disaster. Period. You know, we all know that. My liberal, my liberal former member of Congress isn't saying a word about this. Well, I've been waiting for you to stop shouting at each other. <laughs> <laughs> Brilliant, you all. Thank you, Al. That's wonderful, Al. It's very, very Don't be, don't go Phil Graham on us, Al. Yeah, no kidding. Did beautifully, right? where I have to go to the bathroom. So, I can only give a brief response. Okay. Look, all of this doom that one hears from the Republicans about everything that is proposed, uh, unless, it's, uh, unless it has to do with guns or something like that, uh, is... Time and time again, the progressive policies that have been proposed by the Democrats and have been put in place have been responded to by the Republicans as a coming disaster, and they've been doing that since the late 1930s, and they're still doing it, and by God, we're still here, and we're still in pretty good shape. Uh, you don't find the Republicans wanting to repeal Medicare, which they totally oppose. They you did not, Al. No. It took combined yeah. Republicans and Democrats to enact it into law. Excuse yeah. me. I was here, and it was vigorously opposed by many Republicans, if that. You was a congressman, Alan. No, I wasn't a congressman. In 1964? Oh, no. I don't think so. No, no, no. I was the chief of staff for uh, my predecessor in Congress. Uh, 
you're trying to tell me that the Republicans supported Medicare? Oh God! And they were, and they, they passed the Civil Rights Bill too. You know, thank God, uh, Everett Dirksen Abe Lincoln, was there. Abe Lincoln was a Republican. And, uh, and Abe Lincoln was a Republican. Although I think if he'd ever been lived long enough to see what happened to him, he'd it, still he be a Republican. He blaspheme, blaspheme, blaspheme. Yes. In any event, uh, I, I listen to you guys. You know do your thing. I've heard it all before. It hasn't been true before. I see no reason that uh, your, uh, your your weak Nelly worries are going to be true you know, this time. Wait a minute. Yeah. Uh, wait, 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 I see three Democrats sitting around the table and two Republicans in the monitors. You know, so here we are. I think we're bipartisan. I think so. I think you have had your opportunity to speak well, and I expect you will continue to do so. But wait a minute. Oh, I, I want to go back. I want to go back to what I he said. I didn't have an opportunity to speak. You were saying that I was saying wrong words. I was no, saying no, bad words. No, but I want to go back to what you said. I want to go back before we end the show. I want to go back to what he said. Al, you cannot just tell me that we are just worry warts about the thought of increased minimum wage. I own a small business. That impacts the way that I operate my small business. And quite frankly, I haven't budgeted for a 10, 10 an hour minimum wage. Not that I would hire anybody at a minimum wage, but if I had to hire like a junior person at 10, 10 an hour, that's another $3 an hour I didn't budget for. Of course I'm going to be worried about that. Well, but you'll budget for it next year. <laughs> you, of course wow. you didn't budget for it this year. It's not there. Oh, you're but if it's passed, you will budget for it. Well, that's that sense of entitlement from Congress. <laughs> let's also let's also acknowledge it won't be passed this year. Yes. No. no. So you're safe. It's all politics. It, 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 uh, good lord. Well, Justin has the point, and that's what's frustrating me about our party. And I'm one of the three Democrats sitting here at this table. We need more small business owners talking about issues. We you know what the problem is? I'll tell you the problem. The problem is, is that. Everybody, and, and this is where I'm actually in my firm, in my, in, my, in my government affairs consulting practice, this is actually a niche market that I found. Is the problem is the small business owners don't think that they can have a voice in Washington. I absolutely agree with you. Every small business owner should be marching up to Capitol Hill and have a line out there, congressman's door, screaming about the possibility of a impromptu minimum wage hike. There's no question about that. They don't because they feel like they're not going to be heard and they're going to be trampled over by the big lobbying firms hired by the big billion dollar companies and that they're not going to make any difference. What I tell them is, hey, everybody can have a voice in D.C. Everybody can. You don't have to pay $10,000 a month for it. People will represent you. Yeah. I completely agree with you that the small business person needs to be heard. And they re relied instead on the U.S. Chamber of Commerce. Which is a great organization, by the way. Which is a, is <laughs> a large organization interest. that represents the interests of big business. Yes. Well, they have the NFIB. 
and I was sitting then, and they had the NFIB, which so far as I was able to tell, nobody listened to. I remember once, to their utter astonishment and mine, I received a little award of theirs for my voting record that year. And I, I thought, I've done something wrong. It's like, it's, like the NAA, it's like the NAACP giving it to uh, the owner of the Clippers. My God. It was... It, it, it was the, 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 the NFIB, I think, is is not very effective, and I think one of the reasons I'm suspecting now is that small business people do not have the time to get away from their business and and, and maybe cannot afford the airplane fare and whatever to get back here and do it themselves. What they need here's a business idea for you. What they need is a small spare group that will keep track of when members of Congress go home and get people that are prepared to go talk to the congressman and about their issue when he's back home in the district. That's something that the local businessmen could do and afford and I think should do. Uh, I think there's a lot more of that now than... It's still not usually prevalent, though. Well, I mean, people, that's people the get the information, but then they don't go to those They don't go to the town meetings. meetings. Yeah. i got to tell you, the typical small businessman, you, you know that I'm not running for any office when I say this, the, the typical small businessman, the retail businessman, the guy you see up and down on Main Street, is one of the most cussed people that you're ever going to meet. Farmers, fishermen, I don't believe timber this. workers, and retail business people. What is in that martini? And why, and why are they that way? It's because it's a very scary life. Fisherman, timberman, you know, and the small businessman. He is. He works his tail off. You know, he works six days a week usually and spends. Sunday doing the books, you know, and, and, and as a result, he doesn't have time to do this, and he's a little cynical about the fact that it will do any good, he doesn't present himself well to opinion makers, and he needs a lot of help in that regard. As a Democrat, I have no problem with small business being properly represented on Capitol Hill, but I think that also requires you telling them some of the things about, for example, minimum wage that we heard here that they're not going to get out of the NFIB or the U.S. Chamber of Commerce. They're just going to get the thing, this will destroy you. So, of course, they're against Wow. Okay. Well, with that, I'm going to come to my favorite part of the show. It's Tell Me a Story. We've got eight minutes left. This is where we talk about all the buzz, innuendo, rumor going around, the Beltway, inside the Beltway, outside the Beltway, wherever we can. Uh, Congressman Al, since you're on that diatribe, you'll go last. Bob Hines, tell me a story. The, uh, the president's uh, approval rating is at probably at an all-time low, at 41%. Democrats, as well as Republicans, are concerned, uh, Republicans more so probably, about Obamacare, the economy, slow recovery at best. Uh, it's, uh, it's a very difficult time for Democrats. Uh, on the other hand, 
the Republicans uh, have uh, a problem with it, particularly within some Senate races where a bunch of, of Tea Party folks are running against about half a dozen Republican senators who are sitting now and, are, and none of them are extreme to the right. They're all what I would call conservatives, but they're not uh, Tea Party types. And uh, it, it's, it's a very interesting situation. I would hope as a Republican that the, all those Republican senators are successful when their primaries and win their re-elections. But I'm not sure they will. And I'm also uh, surprised that uh, so few, uh, uh, some, 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 that so few Democrats who are running are running uh, somewhat scared. And I'm, I'm surprised how many of them are having major campaigns against them by, with, with uh, mainstream Republican candidates. It's going to be a very interesting election in the Senate. I am almost convinced that the Republicans will win substantially number, maybe at least three or four seats. They win six, they're going to control the Senate. And if that happens, uh, the president will probably have even more troubles. Denise Kraft. The D.C. City Council will be having a hearing tomorrow. It is joining several other cities like Seattle, Spokane, and Bellingham talking about rail. Since the Las Vegantic incident, more and more jurisdictions are beginning to ask questions of what is traveling through their cities on the rail lines, and the D.C. City Council will be holding a hearing tomorrow to discuss that. I'm looking forward to being there because I'm testifying about that. It should be a very interesting hearing, and I uh, look forward to talking with everybody about it next week. Ah. Would, you, would, you, would you advise them that, uh, that they probably should put less toxic stuff running through the rails and more passengers. Yes, that would be a good idea. Oh, good yes. Lord. It's a cabal. It's a cabal. Alan Moore, we got five minutes left the, quickly. The feds can buy those tickets. Yeah, they could. Oh, they, those, oh, they do. Track. It's called Amtrak. So I haven't had a chance to talk about Harry Reid yet today. Oh, that's true. Uh, <laughs> it's, it's Harry Reid, Senate Majority Leader, who said that, that on Wednesday, tomorrow, he's going to bring up this minimum wage bill and that he will not breach any the potential for any amendments and he will not allow any consideration of a minimum wage increase that's less than that ten dollar and so and much 10 for cents. regular order. So, so he basically virtually guarantees that they will not actually get the sixty votes they need to take up this issue. This is all about politics. Now Harry has had an interesting week because it was just last week that he called the people who went out to help this crazy this crazy cattleman. Um, with their guns. I mean, it was a strange crowd, but he decided to call them publicly domestic terrorists, which, which was, was feeding the beast. Uh, it's created a bunch of security issues, apparently, for him, which is, which is very unfortunate. But, but when he goes out there and just attacks people who are challenging the role of the federal government, he's in trouble. Harry is the new Nancy Pelosi. The, four years ago, it was all about uh, retire Nancy, retire Nancy, retire Nancy. This year, even though most people have never heard of Harry Reid, he has been so visible in his attacks that it's going to be time to retire Harry Reid, and it will resonate. There it is. Carl Tobin, tell me a story. Four minutes left, real quick. The Chinese Lumumbi um, uh, dollar has dropped, and it has tremendous effects on the United States. They like the drop because it gives them more employ employment, but uh, <clears throat> it messes, it, 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 it put a kink in 
the trade agreement that we want to sign with, with China. And also, if it stays low, it, it, China has more power in, uh, in, in trade, and, and we get left out. So this is a very serious situation, um, um, along with the Russian situation, and uh, that could affect our economy. I want to give a shout out to the, the D.C. Republican Party and uh, the, the uh, chairman, Ron Phillips. Uh, largely, the D.C. GOP in a hugely democratic city like D.C. has been relegated or uh, has been phrased as five white guys around a table in Georgetown. Uh, the reality is that when you look at the total population, when you look at the population on the other side of the Anacostia River, which is a predominantly minority community, there are a tremendous amount of Republicans that feel that they have not had a voice heard at a state party or a national party level. Ron Phillips has not only managed to bring them into the fold and allow their voices to be heard, the DC GOP has made them a pivotal part of the way that the party is governed here in Washington, D.C. If the Republican National Committee and Reince Priebus wants to find an example of how to deal with Republican politics in an urban community, Mr. Chairman, I urge you to look at the good things that are happening and the equality and the voice that's being heard by the D.C. GOP here in Washington, D.C. Kudos to Ron Phillips. And there are a lot of other people that should do that. And, and, I, and I, have, I have seen Ron Phillips here eat, sitting with a black man. So oh, I, stop! I don't believe I don't believe you put that on the I, air, Al. I, I, you're cut off. You're in the penalty box. No, 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 no. Go, go, go sit over there. Go sit over there. You're done. You're done. You're done. You're done. I'm not even acknowledging you. On behalf of some old white guy from Washington, Bob Hines, Denise Crepe. Alan Moore, Carl Tubin, I am your moderator. Believe it or not, Justin Russell will be back in two weeks. Next week's going to be a best of. We'll be back in two weeks, and we'll be here live at Shelley's Back Room for the best political talk show you've never heard of. Shelley's Back Room, 1331 F Street, in the heart of our nation's capital, Washington, D.C. Bob? This is the place to be for good political talk. Absolutely, it is. Shelley's Back Room is it. Are you done? I'm done. Best political talk show you've never heard of. We'll see you in two weeks. Have a great week, everybody. Bye-bye. I try to give... You know, just when you thought we were over, I would get yelled at by our producer, Brent Sullivan, if I didn't do this. By the way, you can follow us on Twitter, at Backroom Politics. You can also look us up and hear all of our old shows at www.backroompolitics.org. To our producer, Brent Sullivan, thanks for everything that you're doing, buddy. Have a great week.